Luke chapter 4, verse 1 through 13. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time, and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. This is God's word. You may be seated. Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to be here with you today. Um, I see everybody's wearing their name tags. Good job. Been threatening to do that for a long time. It's great. We can actually learn each other's names today. This will be, it'll be a great Sunday. Um, really good to be here with you today. Um, one of the things that we heard in the Apostles' Creed was that phrase about the one holy Catholic church. And that's, that's an interesting phrase because of how we use the word Catholic today. It's come to be a formal title for the, the Roman Catholic Church. Um, but the word originally meant universal. It's this idea of one church together throughout the world. That this, this realization that, that our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world are part of us, right? That we are one church together. Um, every... every Sunday, um, I um, get up or, or somebody gets up here and, and prays together and um, different focus points that, of what we pray for. But this morning, I thought it would be good for us to pray for that one holy Catholic church, for, for the, the universal church, um, God's saints around the world. And, um, you know, the, this, if, you, if you walk down the hall here, you'll see a poster on the hall um, we didn't put that on that wall over there. It says, Jesus loves me. It's a, it's a club that's going on here in the school. And, uh, I mean, there, there's Christians during the week meeting here, spreading the gospel. And so I think it'd be a good idea. Let's pray for them. Let's pray for others. And let's, let's pray for these things. Father, um, thank you, Lord, for how you have created your body. Lord, we, we are not out here on our own attempting to to make disciples of the whole world by ourselves, Lord, but you have have accomplished your good work of spreading your church, your beautiful bride, throughout the world. And Father, we get to be a small part of that, and so we're we're grateful, Lord, for that um, realization, that reality, 
Um, Lord, I pray for the Jesus Loves Me Club that meets here at Reynolds Middle School during the week. Um, I pray, Father, that you would allow them to be a clear gospel witness um, during the week. I pray that kids would come to know Christ as a result of that, that club. Lord, that you would accomplish your good purposes there. Keep them united. Guide them in all truth, Lord. Keep them from deception. Um, but may you accomplish your good purposes there. Lord, we pray that same thing for all the churches here in Tri-Cities, Lord. And we are, we are friends with many of them. And so, Lord, we pray for unity among the churches. We, we pray for um, the leaders of these churches, Lord. Um, may they guide the flock well. Um, we pray for um, humble hearts that seek to reconcile when needed. Lord, we pray for um, your good purposes to be accomplished in each of these churches. And may the truth of your word be taught clearly. And um, Father, we, we know that there are um, churches around the world and many of them facing significant opposition, um, opposition that we don't have to face on a regular basis. And so, Lord, we pray for your protection over them. Um, Lord, not that they would never face opposition. We know from, from your clear statements um, that there will be opposition. But, Lord, we pray that they would persevere in the midst of that opposition to handle it well. Lord, give them, as you've promised, the words to say when the opposition comes. And, Father, may they be um, firm in their faith. May they persevere in their faith. And may we as well. Lord, may we persevere in our faith. Um, thank you, Lord, um, that even though we have an enemy um, who wants to destroy us, Lord, wants nothing more than to destroy us, thank you, Lord, that you have overcome that enemy. Um, thank you for the, the power that is found in the name of Jesus. And thank you for your steadfast love, Lord, that even when we fail, even when we um, are not faithful to you, God, even when we sin, Lord, you are faithful. And so, Lord, we, we recognize that, and we just thank you for these things, Lord. We um, could not do it on our own, Lord. We need your mercy and grace. And so we, we thank you, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're in Luke chapter 4 this morning. And one of the realities that we all know is that in life, we face many tests, um, tests of all sorts. Uh, if you're in school, you have tests that you probably really don't enjoy, but you have tests. Um, when we learn to drive, we have to pass a driving test. Many of us are very grateful that that's a reality. Um, some of the tests are planned in advance. We know that they're coming, like an exam on Friday, you know. Uh, but many of the tests that we face in life, uh, at least for us, are unexpected. Uh, maybe you are, you're at work and something comes up and suddenly you're being put to the test. How are you going to deal with this particular thing? Maybe you're having a conversation with someone, a, a friend or a family member or whoever, and your patience is being put to the test. We, we all face tests in life. Um, there are actually several stories in the Bible of um, God's people being put to the test in a variety of ways. So we know the story of Abraham, and Abraham, God tells Abraham to take his son Isaac, his only son, the one that he loves, up to the mountain to sacrifice him. 
And ultimately, we know the rest of the story. God intervenes and says, no, you don't have to. But in that moment, he was being put to the test. Would he succeed? The nation of Israel, when they, when they were in the wilderness, 40 years out in the wilderness, and they, they had to rely on God for everything, for water, for manna, food to eat. In the wilderness, they were being put to the test. Um, in the New Testament, we're told, Peter tells us, that when we face various trials and difficulties, God is testing the genuineness of our faith. We're being put to the test. And in the passage that we're looking at today, we're going to see that Jesus is being put to the test. And we're going to find out that, of course, he succeeds with, with um, flying colors or however you say that. Um, uh, last time, you know, just to put this in context, last time we were in Luke's gospel, um, we were, we've been going through and we've really been looking at the introduction to who Jesus is. And the last couple chapters of um, Luke's gospel that we've been going to, um, we've been seeing really who Jesus is, this introduction about him. And last time we were in Luke chapter 3, and we saw the baptism of Jesus. And you guys remember this scene, that the heavens opened, and the Holy Spirit descended, and there's a voice from heaven as God the Father says, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Immediately after that is the, the account that we're looking at today. And in this account, that statement, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, that relationship is being put to the test. Everything that Satan's trying to do here is to drive a wedge between the father and the son. That's his whole purpose. And so we have these kind of weird temptations we're going to look at. What's going on with these Every one of them is trying to drive a wedge between the Father and the Son. So what we're going to do this morning, we're going to explore the logic of these three temptations. Because at first glance, some of them seem a little weird. Go jump off the temple. What's, what's that about? I mean, how, how I don't know. That's, that's a strange one. Um, but through the course of these temptations, we're going to see uh, that Jesus just shows his unwavering trust in God the Father. And so, um, let's begin here, Luke chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan. The Jordan is where he was baptized. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil, and he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. It's one of my favorite statements in the Bible. <laughs> he hasn't eaten for 40 days, and then he's hungry. I would be too. <laughs> I think we all would be. Um, it's interesting. This says that he was full of the Holy Spirit, and he was being led by the Spirit. And so this is very intentional. God is leading Jesus out into the wilderness to be tested. And he's going to be tempted by the devil. It says that he is being tempted by the devil for those 40 days. And so the three temptations we see are probably just the end. This isn't everything that he faced. This is the end. This is the climax of, of what's going on here. And there, there's some major parallels. So I just want to mention this briefly, but there's major Old Testament parallels. So, so Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, face-to-face 
with the devil, and they are tempted, and, and they have to deal with this. Jesus is like a new Adam who is facing off against the devil and dealing with temptation, but he does it successfully. Um, Jesus is like a new Israel. Israel was led out into the wilderness for 40 years, dependent upon the Lord for everything, and um, they're being put to the test and they don't succeed. And here we have Jesus led out into the wilderness for 40 days, no food, and he succeeds in this test. So let's look at each of these temptations because they're interesting. So the first one, uh, verse 3, the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. Now, on the surface, that seems like a pretty reasonable suggestion. (laughs) He has just succeeded at 40 days without food, which was probably the goal. He made it 40 days. That's, that's good. He made it through this time of testing. He seems to have won out over Satan already. Satan is simply suggesting that he make some dinner for himself. And he could. He's the son of God. He could easily turn a stone into bread. And what I want you to see with this is this temptation is so subtle that most of us probably would have missed it. And that's important for us to understand. I, I think... Um, you know, the, the devil, his goal is to deceive us. I heard somebody ask one time, is it possible to be deceived and not know it? And, and I mean, the answer is yes, right? Like, that's the very definition of what it means to be deceived. Yeah. So, so the whole goal for Satan is to deceive us. And often, I think we assume that temptation is going to be really obvious. It's like a, a, a beautiful woman in a red dress, right? You know that there's a temptation, right? That's usually not how it is. Usually, temptation is very subtle. So, temptation, often the devil will tempt us to do good things, but in the wrong way or at the wrong time. And so the temptation here, um, just consider what Satan's trying to do here. Satan is implying several things. Okay, so he says, just just make dinner. Just eat some bread. But consider what he's implying. You are obviously starving, Jesus, but you're the Son of God. You can do something about it. You can care for yourself Let's, let's be honest, better than God the Father has been caring for you during this time here in the wilderness. In fact, if the Father really loved you, He would have given you some food by now. The 40 days is up. The, the test has gone on long enough. You should, just, you should just take matters into your own hands. Make some food. The, the devil appears to befriend Jesus and even advocate for him. Oh, it's okay. Yeah, I, this is tough. You should just eat some food. Look at Jesus' response. Verse 4, he says, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. Man also needs beef and vegetable. No, that's not what he's saying. Okay? Jesus is using shorthand here to refer to something really significant back in the book of Deuteronomy. 
Um, so let me read that passage for us. It's Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 2 and 3. And this is Moses reflecting back on the time that Israel had in the wilderness. And he says, You shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandment or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone. But man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So Jesus was led into the wilderness by the Spirit to be tested just like Israel. He's led out into the wilderness, and he wasn't about to skip the test. Right? That's what this ultimately comes down to. Just as the Father was testing Israel, Jesus recognizes that the Father is testing him. And the interesting thing is the test, what they were supposed to learn, what Israel was supposed to learn through this, is that they could depend on the Lord. When God spoke and provided them with manna from heaven or water from a rock or whatever, when God spoke, they could trust him. And that's what Jesus is saying here, is that he can trust the Lord to provide for him, to care for him. And so this test, this test, if you want to kind of sum it up, how, how do we, you know, label this thing? This test was all about independence. Will you satisfy your physical needs on your own apart from God? Will you take matters into your own hands or will you trust the Lord? That's in effect what Satan is saying. And Jesus' response is just amazing, even in his human nature. Jesus is supplied by what God's Word offered him. Jesus is being supplied. Effectively, Jesus is saying, God has already met my needs. Why would I I need bread? God has provided for me. And that really takes all the power out of the temptation, doesn't it? Uh, I don't have a need. I'm already provided for. He has contentment, in other words. And so I would summarize round one this way, you know, ding, 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 ding. You know, they're in this, this match. And round one, Satan offers independence, and Jesus counters with contentment. Okay? You can do it on your own. God's already providing for me. He has already provided for me through the Word of God, through his deep dependence on the Father, his recognition of what God is doing for him. So then Satan comes along, temptation number two, and he offers him power and glory. And this one, this one seems a lot more obvious, right? All the kingdoms of the world. So, so let me read here, Luke chapter 4, verses 5 and 7. The devil took him up, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time, and said to him, to you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it's been delivered to me, and I will give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Did Satan have the authority? Did he actually have the authority to make that offer? Could he actually render all the kingdoms of the world to Jesus? Or is this an empty offer? Okay, what's, what's interesting is Jesus does not argue with his premise here. 
Um, if you go over and you look in John's gospel, you find out three times Jesus calls Satan the ruler of this world. Um, John 12, 30, 13, I'm sorry, John 12, 31, several others. He calls him the ruler of this world. Um, over in 2 Corinthians, Paul calls Satan the God of this world. Revelation 13, 2, John says that Satan has power and a throne and great authority. Is that weird? Like, what's, what's going on here? Why, why does Satan have such power and authority in this world? Um, did God give him that authority? How did he get that authority? Well, the answer is that we humans gave it to him. So if you go all the way back to Genesis, Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, God created humanity. He says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. There are several other statements there in Genesis 1 and 2 that speak of our dominion over the earth. So at the very beginning, God delegates authority to mankind to rule over the earth. But then we know the rest of the story. We know in the Garden of Eden, um, Satan comes along and he tempts them. And we, in essence, gave that authority over to Satan. And we've been doing it ever since, where we give control over to the devil. And that's been the, the history of mankind. And so we live in contested territory. Every square inch of planet Earth is contested territory, and Satan has claimed authority to where this is, this is at least somewhat a legitimate claim that, that he is making, that he can give this authority to Jesus. He at least has some kind of claim over the earth to where Paul can call him the God of this world, where Jesus himself calls him the ruler of this world. And so Satan says, it's okay, you've come to fix this problem. And, and that's really what Jesus is, that's one of the main things that's going on that we need to see is that he is coming to reclaim for humanity, authority over all the kingdoms of this world. And he will reclaim that authority. And so that's why this temptation is so significant, is this is actually what his goal is, right? He's coming to earth to reclaim authority over this world. And Satan says, okay, I'll offer you a shortcut to this. And whether he knew all that Jesus was going to face with, with the crucifixion and all of that, Satan is offering him a shortcut to this goal. It's a good thing for Satan to, or, or I'm sorry, it's a good thing for Jesus to rule over all the kingdoms of the earth, but this was in the wrong way at the wrong time. And so it all comes down to what's most important to Jesus. Is this goal of achieving authority over the earth, is that the most important thing to Jesus? And what we find out is, no, it's not. The most important thing to Jesus is worship of God the Father. Why does he want to have authority over all the kingdoms of the earth? It's because he wants to bring all praise to God the Father. And so that's the whole point of what, what Jesus is doing. And so, you know, we're familiar with this temptation. This is the temptation 
the, the idol of achievement, where ultimately, you know, you're, you're going to do whatever it takes to achieve that goal, whether it's a career goal or something with your family or, or whatever the goal is, we'll do whatever it takes for that goal. And so um, in verse 8, we see Jesus' response. Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. And so in that response, Jesus isn't just responding to this, he's responding to any offer any idol that would come along that would say, exalt this thing more highly than God. And so the way I would summarize this round, um, Satan offers achievement, but what Jesus offers is true worship. So Satan's going after the achievement goal, and Jesus says true worship. You can have everything in this world, I'd rather have God. That's really what Jesus is saying. So then we come to the third temptation. This is the, the X Games. This is jump off a high place. Um, this is extreme sports. I, th- this one's interesting. So verse 9, the devil took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Uh, so this, this location, um, this is probably um, what's, what's called the royal porch on the temple's southeast corner. And so it's this part of the temple that's, that's tall already, and it is right above a cliff that looks down on the Kidron Valley. And so at that point, it was about a 450-foot drop off that part of the temple. And so that's really tall. (laughs) 450 feet is really tall. If you've ever been out to Palouse Falls, that's about 200 feet. This is 450 feet. This is getting up in the realm of like Multnomah Falls. This is really high. And so um, out of curiosity, just because this is how my brain works, I, I calculated on the internet. How long would it take to fall 450 feet? It's five and a half seconds. Okay, so that's, that's definitely long enough to think about it. One, two, three, four, five splat, you know. So it's, it's a really long time. So 450 feet is really high. Um, Josephus, who is a Jewish historian, um, well-known, um, he said people would go up there and they'd look off this thing and, and feel dizzy because it was so high. So what is Satan doing? <laughs> why does he bring him up to this high spot and say, hey, why don't you jump? What's going on here? Well, what Satan is doing is he is maybe adapting his, his approach a little bit. Jesus keeps quoting Scripture. And so what Satan does is he, uh, he decides to quote Scripture as well. He quotes from Psalm 91. He quotes a couple verses that are about God's protection, his care for those who love him and are faithful to him. And so he says, if you're the son of God, and if you have this amazing relationship with God, then here's an opportunity for you to show this amazing relationship with God. Here's an opportunity for you to see that God cares for you. That God loves you. Um, God protects those who are his, so jump. 
Go ahead and jump. If you're God's son, you don't need to worry about anything. Now, um, just put this out there. That's not what Psalm 91 was saying. (laughs) That was not the point of Psalm 91. It was not, hey, why don't you get God to prove his love for you? That was absolutely not what Psalm 91 was about. But it's a fascinating approach, isn't it? Because by by the devil presenting this to Jesus, it makes it sound like Jesus doesn't really trust God if he doesn't jump. What it reminds me of is a couple kids like standing around like, I dare you, I dare you to jump. You know, are you scared? (laughs) Don't don't do that, by the way, kids. Um, uh, The truth is, if Jesus did jump, it would not be an expression of faith. It would really be testing God. Um, It would actually be unbelief masquerading as faith. Um, The premise behind the whole test is that either God's not going to protect the Son or that Jesus doesn't really trust his Father. And so Jesus sees through this. Um, He recognizes that demanding miraculous protection from the Father, that's, that's not faith, that's sin. And so he refuses, and we, we read his response here in verse 12. Jesus answered him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. It's fascinating. All of Jesus' responses come from Deuteronomy 8 and Deuteronomy 6. He doesn't have to go very far. And these are very familiar passages if you're a Jewish person. These, these are some of the core things that they would cling to. Deuteronomy 6 is where we hear, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. So, so these are familiar passages. Jesus doesn't have to go far to show just the error of what, what Satan is, is saying. Now, it's interesting because this particular one, don't put the Lord your God to, a te- to the test, is really a, a double meaning here. First off, Jesus is applying this to himself. He's not going to put the Lord, his God, to the test. He's not going to put God the Father to the test and and expect God to prove his love to him. But Jesus is also speaking these words as a rebuke to Satan, isn't he? It's wrong for Satan to challenge God the Son to prove who he is, to prove his identity, to prove his relationship with the Father. So he's in in essence saying, you, Satan, should not put the Lord your God, Jesus, to the test. Okay. So if I were to summarize this one, I would say Satan offers manipulation, but Jesus offers real trust, actual trust in God. Is God actually going to keep his promises? Jesus says, I'm I'm never going to doubt that. And so if you look at these three, just kind of review briefly here. Round one, Satan offers independence. Jesus counters with contentment. Round two, Satan offers achievement. Jesus counters with true worship. You can have everything. I'd rather have God. And round three, Satan offers manipulation, and Jesus counters with real trust in his Father. Is God actually going to keep his promises? Yes. I'm never going to doubt that. And so in each one of these, um, Jesus is, is faithful. And there's some things that we can learn about this, from this that I, I want to point out. The first thing that I think is really relevant for us is that there is a real 
spiritual battle that we are facing. There's a real spiritual battle going on in this world. Uh, the devil's real. You know, even if, even if we've all seen all the, you know, funny pictures from the Middle Ages of a, of a guy that's all in red with a pitchfork and horns and, and all that bit, right? I, I think, honestly, that's yet another deception to make us think, oh, ha, that's funny, it's a cartoon, it's not real. The devil is real, and the devil is personal. Like, you see the interaction going on here. This is, it's not a metaphor, this is not an impersonal force or anything like that. He is a fallen angel dedicated to destroying the image of God everywhere he can. 1 Peter 5.8 says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And how does he do that? Well, lots of different ways, but one of the main ways is through deceiving us. Um, Revelation 12.9 says, it calls um, the devil the deceiver of the whole world. And we saw, we saw this in these temptations, you know, the, the devil can be subtle. Some of these temptations are very subtle. And the battlefield, the battlefield is, is for our mind, right? It's for, for the thoughts that we have. So, so let me read this passage from 2 Corinthians where it says, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. And then listen to what he says. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. What are the things we're fighting against? We're fighting against arguments and opinions, and thoughts. That's where the battle rages. It's, it's in our minds, right? Like that, that's, it's, it's a battle for the way we're going to think about the world and the way we're going to interact with the world and view things. It's a battle for our minds. And so the divine power to destroy strongholds, what is that? What is that power that we have to counter all of these false arguments? Well, you see Jesus use it over and over. It's the Word of God. The Word of God is powerful. We need the Word of God so that when deception comes along, we recognize, hold on a second, that looks like a counterfeit. I've seen the real thing. That's not it. And we can recognize these things. Um, Later in 2 Corinthians, Paul says, I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts, your thoughts, will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. The danger is that our thoughts will be led astray. So what do we do about that? Well, I read it a moment ago. 1 Peter 5.8 says, be sober-minded, be watchful, right? Be aware there's a danger out there that we're going to be led astray. And we have a real enemy who's trying to do it, and he's pretty good at it. He's been doing it for a long time. In fact, he's the ruler of this world, so he must have, been, he must have actually been pretty good at this, right? And led a lot of people astray. And so we have a real enemy. We need to be sober-minded. We need to be watchful. And we need to consider carefully the thoughts that are presented to us. And those thoughts come from a million different directions, right? So that's going to come from... Social media and TV and, and your friends and, and school and, 
You know, don't believe everything you read on the internet. Some of it's not true, right? So, like, it's coming from all directions, the, the, the influences, and we need to be watchful. We need to be sober-minded and ready to evaluate. And, and we got to know God's Word well enough that when it comes along, we're like, I don't think so. I don't think that's right. And, and recognize the truth. Um, 2 Corinthians 10.5, I also read this one already, but it says, take every thought captive to obey Christ. So a thought comes into your mind, and it could be any number of things, but a thought comes into your mind, and, and you take that thought, and you say, I'm going to put this at the feet of Jesus, and I'm going to see what he says about this. And does he think it's a good idea to be unfaithful to my wife? No, no, he says that's a really bad idea. Or does he think it's a good idea to believe this this strange, different view about who God is? No, no, actually, he says in in his word that's not good. or, Or any number of things that come our way that we need to put at the feet of Jesus. Take those thoughts captive for him. Don't fall for the lies. Cling to the truth. Okay, so that's the first thing I think this is, that's relevant to us about this, is just recognizing the battle. It's, way, it's raging all around us all the time, and we need to be aware of that. The second thing, and this, this I think is really helpful out of this, you know, the, the whole goal that Satan had, had was to drive a wedge between the Father and the Son. And that's really not any different for us. Uh, There are many ways to fall into sin, lots and lots of ways to fall into sin, but they're all really about a lack of trust in God. That's really what it all comes down to. Um, Jesus just had this utter dependence on the Father through all of it. There wasn't wasn't a glimmer of daylight there between them. He He was with the Father. There's no separation ever at any point, not even a hint of distrust in the Father through his entire life. Um, you know, I've, I've taught on this passage before. Um, I've heard other people teach on this passage. And the natural thing to do is to go to this and say, see, Jesus uses the Bible over and over to fight against temptation. And so you just need to know your Bible, right? If you know your Bible, you'll be in good shape. There's a caveat here. <laughs> so you do need to know your Bible. But there's a caveat And that's the recognition that the scribes and the Pharisees knew their Bible. Satan knows his Bible. That's not helping them any. (laughs) The the reality is it's not just knowledge. It's what we do with it. It's, It's how we respond with that. What's really needed and what's demonstrated in Jesus, what Jesus demonstrates so well, is an actual trust in God. That's what we need. So, yeah, sure, we need to have some knowledge of God's Word, obviously. But, but what do we do with that? Well, that should motivate us to trust God. So James 4.7, good passage talking about this whole idea of spiritual battle. Submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. It's like the three-step plan to, to overcoming spiritual battle. Okay, Submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Our problem isn't usually the devil. Okay? Our problem is usually ourselves. 
It's, it's that we don't want to submit to God because <laughs> God's telling us something we don't want to hear. I remember, I think it was Mark Twain that said, I don't have a problem with the um, passages of the Bible that I don't understand. It's the ones that I do understand that trouble me the most. Um, <laughs> great quote. Um, our problem is that we don't trust God enough to submit to Him, to, to really believe that His his plans and purposes are, for us are the best. That if he, if he sends us out in the wilderness for 40 days with no food, that he must have a good plan and we can trust him. Um, James 1, 16 and 17 says this. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Okay? So how do we not be deceived? Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift And every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. How can we overcome deception? So much of it is just about our view of God. Do we recognize Him as a loving Father who gives good and generous gifts? Or do we think He's holding out on us? Right? That, was, that was kind of the temptation in the, in the Garden of Eden, right? Adam and Eve, they're in the garden. Satan comes along. And what does he say? He says, yeah, God's kind of holding out on you. You know, if you, if you ate from this, you'd get knowledge. I mean, he's trying to hold back on you. Um, he, he's trying to withhold this from you. Um, the reality is God was trying to protect them, right, with this command. And that's how it always is. God gives good and generous gifts, and we can trust Him. How do you overcome temptation? So much of it is just about learning to trust God and recognize that the whole point of the temptation is to drive a wedge between you and God. So how do we overcome sin in our lives? So much of it's about learning to trust the Father. The last thing that I want to point out here is that Jesus passed the test. Um, we can learn a lot about dealing with temptation from this passage. There's, there's a lot of good stuff there. But that's probably not the main point that Luke is trying to drive home for us here. The main point is about Jesus, that Jesus passed the test. Jesus has this perfect relationship with the Father, and, and he's led by the Spirit. He, he's in this relationship with the Father. Never for a moment does he submit to temptation Jesus does for us what we could never do for ourselves, right? So this isn't, a, this isn't the three-step plan to you can be amazing. This, this is recognizing Jesus passed the test. And so if, if we're in Christ, we're good to go, right? That, that's, the, that's the point here, is that we can trust Him. He is the righteous one. He is the perfect Son of God. He is the one who has the perfect relationship with the Father. Amen? Amen. Let's, let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you, Lord, that you are trustworthy, that you are good, that we can put our hope and our confidence in you. Thank you for your steadfast love that never fails. And Lord, I pray that we would not be led astray from you. Lord, that we would not give in to the lies of the enemy that are all ultimately motivated to tear us down by separating us from our loving Father. Um, Lord, I pray for those 
in the room who are struggling with, with temptations or, or areas of deception in their lives, Lord, may they submit to you. May every one of us, Lord, submit to you because probably there's many of us that don't realize the things that we're struggling with, Lord. Um, humble us. Bring us to you, Father. Help us to be confident in our relationship with you. Lord, we pray all these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.